Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey listeners, Aisha here. I wanted to tell you about a new podcast you should be listening to. Conversations with people who hate me from the TED Audio Collective. What happens when people who've clashed in the past have a conversation? Host Dilip Moran is an expert in tough conversations. He's called up his own haters and online trolls to find the humanity on the other side of the screen. On the new season, Dylan explores how we can find common ground through conversations between people who think they see the world differently. On this season, hear from a survivor of conversion therapy and the man who ran the gay clinic, a mother and her trans son, a person turned meme and online troll, and more. Part therapy session, part confessional. It's a podcast about talking it out to understand each other. Find conversations with people who hate me wherever you get your podcasts. I summed it up by asking him this question where he said, don't you think that needing to say goodbye to a child will make dying even more painful? And he said, wouldn't it be great if it did make it harder? And taking care of Paul was the worst thing I've ever had to do, and also the best. I've really learned from my daughter the way that grief can mix together with happiness. When we approach suffering together, when we choose not to hide from it, our lives don't diminish, they expand. Is this painful work for you? Um. Welcome everyone, I'm Aisha Sasseh, and you're listening to The Accidental Activist, the show where we discover the sparks that unexpectedly ignite people's passion to change the world. My guest today is Dr. Lucy Kalanithi. Lucy is a clinical associate professor of medicine at Stanford University, as well as a leading voice in the fight to change the way we handle end-of-life care. And she's also the host of the podcast Gravity. I first encountered Lucy within the pages of her dying husband's haunting memoir, When Breath Becomes Air. The New York Times bestseller left me weeping and profoundly altered by Paul Kalanithi's story of dying with graceful acceptance. So when I heard that Lucy had become an activist committed to improving end-of-life care, I was determined to get her on this show in the hope of gaining some understanding of why she would choose to harness her own experiences, one so personal and painful, to try to bring about change in the lives of others. I also went into this conversation wondering whether, in fact, this kind of grief-fueled activism might be harmful to one's emotional well-being. Having now spent some time with Lucy, I can honestly say our conversation is amongst the most emotionally and intellectually impactful ones I've ever had. 
To have experienced the loss of a loved one and the accompanying grief is to know how it can be all-consuming. But as Lucy's journey shows, one can lay that pain down as a pathway towards making a difference. I hope this episode is as meaningful for you as it was for me. Lucy, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. This has been, you know, quite a time, as you well know, well over a year of huge disruption, dislocation, upheaval. Um, this pandemic has just upended much of much of life for, for, for all of us, really, wherever you are in the world. And, and I'm wondering right now, what's bringing you joy? Oh, wow. Um... Let me think about it for a second. I mean, I think about joy. I think there's sort of like different layers of wondrous things in our lives, right? Like there's meaning, which is super deep. Um, And then when I think about joy, I think about it as like really present focused, like something that is um, just like filling up a moment. And the first thing that comes to mind actually is watching my daughter interact with our cat we have this cat whose name is Birdie Bird, and she's a black cat, and she's sort of spooky, but she's also really friendly, and she's almost like an attachment figure for my daughter. <laughs> They're in love with each other, and they sleep together, and my daughter, who's um, six, draws tons of portraits of Birdie, and just is really into Birdie, and I think seeing, I guess I'm seeing joy through my daughter's eyes. Um just loving this cat and thinking about this cat. And then I feel so guilty because, you know, there's all the like cat lady stereotypes and I feel like I'm creating a cat lady by having this cat with my daughter. And so, but she's just going to have to be a cat lady. I think it's just fine. There's love in there and that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. I I think about joy a lot. Uh, And it's something that I, I talk about a great deal because I feel that especially now in the midst of everything I referenced, joy is very much the way I see it. And I'm very interested in getting your perspective on this, that joy very much is a choice. That There has to be an intentional element to choosing joy, even in the midst of upheaval, grief, and huge disruption. And I wonder how you see it. Oh, that's such a great observation. I think that's right. I think, you know, like allowing for joy, even when things are really hard, it does feel like a choice or not feeling guilty about joy. I feel like there was a lot of writing about that in the early pandemic, especially of like, are we allowed to find beauty? Are we allowed to find joy even as there's so much loss, you know? And I think there is a sort of resistance in finding joy. And then I think you know, for people who are grieving, I remember Sheryl Sandberg's writing about finding joy after her husband died, where she was at this wedding and she noticed that she was dancing and she hadn't danced in like months or a year. And then she felt kind of guilty that she was dancing and feeling joyful after having lost her husband. And so I think there is this sort of meta layer of like, do we deserve it? Can we have it? Is it letting someone down to feel joy? 
I think that's really interesting. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that um, Sheryl Sandberg moment. My dad died when I was 12, and I, I remember this moment where people had come to the house to pay their respects, and friends, my own age group, turned up on this one particular day, and I was laughing and present with my friends and being a teenager. And I still, to this day, feel guilt around that moment of joy and thinking that was maybe inappropriate and maybe disrespectful to to my dad. So just to what you're talking about, that kind of accessing joy in the midst of suffering and how complicated that is. Totally. I think kids know sort of instinctively that you're allowed to have it all emotionally. They toggle so quickly between emotions and they can feel so many things throughout the course of a day. And I feel like I've, I've really learned from my daughter the way that grief can mix together with happiness. And I, just to give an example, we visit my late husband's grave pretty frequently. And she gets really excited to go. Like she brings stuffed animals and then plays with them sort of against Paul's headstone or sticks them in the flowers that we're leaving for Paul. And it really is kind of a mix of this, like a beautiful, naive mix of, you know, like sadness and a somber place with, with this kind of like joyful childlike stuff. But ultimately I think actually it's not so naive. I think it's kind of wise. And I think she can see that it's not only a somber place. And so it's interesting because I feel like when you're describing this thing at your dad's memorial, you were a teenager, right? And that's not to minimize what it feels like for you, um, like your obligation to your dad, the moment. But I wonder if you had it right. Yeah, I wondered too. You reference Paul, your beloved husband, and who is known to many of us through his memoir, When Breath Becomes Air. He lost his battle with lung cancer in in 2015. And I remember reading the book on a plane and bawling and everybody sitting close by just thinking, who is this nutter and why is she crying so openly and freely in public? And was just so terribly moved by it on so many levels. And you helped finish the book. You, you did the epilogue after he sadly passed. And there is so much um, clarity in the writing around dying and death. And also, he was so resolute. The writing is so resolute around living and holding on to joy, even with a known end fast approaching. He never gave up on joy. And I wonder for you whether it was a struggle in that moment to kind of be aligned with him as he took this approach to, to his life coming to an end. You know, I think initially when you get this terrible diagnosis or when you learn that a loved one is really sick, everything's upended. You sort of lose the identity you thought you would have and you have to kind of reconstitute what meaning is possible and what your new identity will be, right? Like suddenly, suddenly Paul wasn't going to be a neurosurgeon for years and years. And so he had to reconstitute what his life would be. And I realized, you know, both of us being physicians and understanding the illness, 
I realized we wouldn't have this long marriage and that I would go on alone. And at the same time, everything sort of shrank down to the moment because we didn't know when Paul would die and I didn't know what things would look like when he died. And so it sort of became like we were focused much more on the present and almost like the present became hypersaturated, you know, including with things like joy and and just a sense of like even the quotidian feeling very meaningful, even though that sounds like such a cliche because it was really sort of painful to have that be true at the same time. So yeah, I mean, I guess the thing that happened for me is it really felt like my sense of time was disrupted. And that that was kind of the hard thing to get my head around. And I think in particular, we had to make this decision about whether to try to have a child in that time. And that felt like a new reckoning with trying to figure out like how to let everything all in at once and whether you still can. So I think one of the things that um, I was very struck by, and you just referenced, Lucy, was the decision to have a child while Paul was, was, was dying. I think, you know, for a lot of people that would have seemed an odd decision. I just wonder whether you would talk us through, you know, the process of, of reaching that conclusion and, and I guess why you and Paul decided to have Katie. You know, I think I would have thought it was crazy too. And I actually did at the time a bit. We had sort of planned to try to have children around that time anyway, um, had Paul not gotten sick. We were both coming to the end of our training in medicine. And things were ostensibly about to get easier as we sort of entered our um, real jobs after residency. And that was right. That was the moment when Paul was uh, diagnosed with lung cancer and he was diagnosed at a late stage. So he was pretty sick at the time and it was incurable. And we sort of looked at each other and then had this conversation about, should we still try to have a child? And I think he was worried about me um, and the prospect of being a single parent going forward and, you know, securing the support of our family to help me and things like that. And I was really focused on, really focused on what it would mean for him. And I guess what I mean by that is I got nervous that it would either, you know, like take away from time that he and I had together potentially, or certainly that it would just be really existentially or emotionally hard. And, and sort of, I summed it up by asking him this question where he said, don't you think that needing to say goodbye to a child will make dying even more painful for you? And his answer really astounded me and sort of cinched the whole thing. And he said, wouldn't it be great if it did make it harder? And it just was really illuminating about, you know, nobody decides to have a child because it's going to make their life easier. And that's just like not what this, what the deal is with that. And I think this sort of sense of, in a, in a lot of ways, accepting something really beautiful and meaningful does come with accepting pain or hardship and feel like even as you're dying, your life is expanding and love is expanding. 
and possibility is expanding. I think he really embraced that. And it it's to, I think of that question all the time. Wouldn't it be great if it did? I think of it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's deeply profound. So Paul so wonderfully was able to accept his prognosis and with that say, let's have a child. But for a lot of people, they can't reach that point of acceptance because acceptance for them means surrendering and in some ways losing hope. And, and I just wonder how, you know, how you've navigated that or how you think about that, you know, being faced with a terminal illness and having to accept it and that not seeming like surrendering. Yeah, totally. So I think of a couple of different things. In that battle metaphor, thinking about cancer and the the fight against cancer, I think there certainly is that really common narrative about you are fighting to live as long as possible. And so that's important. But I also think there's many, many layers of things that people are also fighting for. Like they're striving for their family to be okay. You know, a huge one I think is fighting to forge some kind of new meaning or purpose, because I think that is immensely sustaining to feel a sense of purpose, even when time is short. Um, I really like this quote by Nietzsche, who said, he who has a why to live can bear almost any how. And I feel like if you can uncover that why for yourself, that is a real victory, you know? And then I think, to me, that struggle for acceptance, like to get your head around your own finitude or your own place in a fabric of humanity, whether or not you are alive forever or for a longer time or not, is a really big deal. I think there is a victory in that too. And, you know, like an intellectual, philosophical, emotional, um, special place that you that you get to when you're really considering those big questions in your life. And in a way, they're so much harder to consider when 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 your time really is short. And so I think Paul thought about a struggle, but not necessarily the the classic um cancer battle that's focused specifically around treatment. I think that there actually is meaning itself in the struggle to find acceptance of suffering. Yeah. And I guess learning to incorporate suffering and figuring out what to do with it. Um, and some of that involves not fighting it. I find that deeply affecting because it's well known uh, about me that my mother had a catastrophic stroke and has been hospitalized for almost five years now. And it has left her completely incapacitated. And it has been a struggle, which I, I endure every day to find that place of acceptance. Yet at the same time, I have derived a lot of meaning from the ongoing struggle. And it has expanded my idea of what it means to be alive and what it is to live fully. So what you said there, I found um, deeply impactful. But I don't know whether your, your, your clarity of thought, how much of that is informed by the fact you're a physician? You know, uh, such a good question. I've, I think about that a lot. 
there are a lot of barriers to acceptance, right? And one of them is just these really strong emotions. Obviously, sadness is one of them, but anxiety is one. And anger is really huge. And I, I think, I don't know, there's sort of a peeling away of these layers of narrative that can obstruct acceptance. And maybe acceptance isn't even the goal for a lot of people or nor, you know, maybe should it be. Depends on the type of suffering. But but I feel like one thing that I didn't have to go through as much as I might have expected was this sense of thinking that what was happening to Paul or me was unfair, because I think that can be such an obstacle yeah. to acceptance. And I think for me, that came from being a physician. I I feel like I've seen so many instances in which, so to speak, bad things happen to good people, you know, which is almost everyone. And so I felt like when Paul got sick, it didn't feel so much like, how could this happen to us or why us? It felt almost like, oh, it happens to be our turn now. And, you know, I wouldn't have expected it, but like today it's us. So I did feel like I sort of slipped past the anger about it being unfair just from having seen so many other families go through similar things i i often say it's just our journey that's what i say because a lot of people say how could this happen to her in reference to my mother and this is this is just so unfair because she was a public figure in, in Sierra Leone where we're from so a lot of people have a lot of strong feelings about it and i just say it's our journey did you say that right away? Did. I, I think, again, the thing that I find really interesting about, again, about the clarity of thought that Paul had and, and that you have, have expressed and in the writings is that my mother was very, um, was also very clear-eyed. Uh, she never saw a stroke coming, but she always spoke with a very pragmatic view about death and, and dying and was very at peace with it. But for her, I mean, for her, it, it comes from a place of religious faith, as opposed to maybe influenced by being, you know, medical training. And um, I think I have taken that on and just reframed it in my life as it's, it's our journey. It's so interesting. That's so interesting to have this almost sort of instant acceptance. Yeah. That makes sense to me, too. The first half of my conversation with Lucy Kalanithi is clearly rooted in the personal. Yet I think some important wider lessons for activists emerged. I was taken with the words she used to frame her thinking about having a baby while her beloved Paul approached death. Accepting something really beautiful and meaningful does come with accepting pain or hardship, is how she put it. The key word is, of course, acceptance. As activists, we need to get more comfortable with the idea that the meaningful change that we're striving for is often inextricably bound with painful struggle. That hardship will take different forms for different people, but the one constant is the need to learn how to be okay with all of it. And there can still be beauty and joy in the process. Earlier in the season, writer and comedian Baratunde Thurston 
said that being an activist is today associated with being very serious. In my mind, I picture that as living on just one note, a subdued, somewhat joy-free life. But after listening to Lucy describe how children move through the world, I'm more convinced than ever that even while we're tackling hard, serious and painful issues as we fight for change, we are allowed to have it all emotionally. I'm leaving you with a lot to think about as we go to break. We'll be right back. Hey listeners, Aisha here. If you like this show, you should check out In Case You Missed It, Slate's podcast about internet culture. It's a show for people who have a healthy relationship with the internet, made by people who really, really don't. It's hosted by Slate, Madison Malone Kircher and Rachel Hampton. Twice a week, they'll explore what's trending at the top of your feeds, investigate the ghosts of the internet past, and help you sound like the smartest person in your group chat. Episodes drop every Wednesday and Saturday. Search ICYMI wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Accidental Activist and the second half of my conversation with Dr. Lucy Kalanithi. This is where we get to the heart of her activism. As you'll discover, it was the unexpected shift of moving from physician to the caregiver of a dying loved one that sparked her understanding of the urgent need to reform many of the end-of-life care practices that our society has come to accept. As we spoke, Lucy brought alive the power of storytelling to affect change in our world. She's another reminder to all activists that it isn't data and reams of statistics that move people, but rather the story you tell and how you make them feel. Let's face it, the story Lucy tells is as personal as it gets. Over and over again, she shares her pain with audiences, with a singular mission in mind, for us to do better for our dying loved ones and ourselves. This is some of the most selfless and humane work an activist can do. I do wonder what you what you learned from going from Paul being a physician to a patient. How did that change you? I guess a couple of different things. I think, um, you know, one thing that I felt sort of humble about afterwards, having been a doctor, you know, I just described how I felt connected to the experience by having watched my patients go through it. But at the same time, I don't think I had quite realized how totally disorienting it would be to have this sudden diagnosis of serious illness. And and even in a way, apart from how hard it is to get your head around limited time or your mortality, I think I hadn't quite realized until that moment how much of our identities is tied up in a conception of our future selves, who we plan to become and what we think we'll have. And in Paul's writing, he described this moment where he gets the cancer diagnosis and he felt like the future evaporated. And it's sort of like he's the same person he was five minutes ago. And at the same time, he's a completely different person because his 
his future is now so uncertain. And I think even if you haven't explicitly articulated it to yourself, you do have this supposition about the existence of the future that you're sort of walking toward or into. And so I think that disorientation was a big part of the experience. Um, the one other thing um, that I think about a lot as a physician and had before and do now is sort of this need in medical care for us as patients or physicians to, to match up the types of treatments we're getting with who we are and what we want out of our lives. And um, I've heard you say that before, and it was top of mind to ask you to break that down. I guess I'll just give a couple examples. Well, so here's one. Um, when Paul first got sick, there were a couple of different chemotherapy choices, and they had different side effects. And so it was really important to know who Paul was, that he was a young neurosurgeon embarking on this treatment, because in particular, one of the most commonly used chemotherapy agents for his type of cancer has a severe side effect of making your fingers and toes numb or tingling, which maybe for some people, I mean, for everybody, it's unpleasant. But for a surgeon, it could potentially make your job totally impossible. And so taking into account Paul's identity as a surgeon and work as a surgeon and holding open any space or possibility for him to return to that even while sick sort of closed the door to this one particular treatment. And it was worth it to close the door on that. So that's one example. And I think, you know, in medicine, it seems like there's a clear path in many cases, but in so much of medicine, there are choices. And, you know, even in something as simple as, um, like choosing whether or not to get a radical mastectomy if you need it, or choosing whether to get a joint replacement and go through that surgery and rehab or not, depends on your identity. Like, does, it, does mobility matter more to you or does pain matter more? Um, how much of your identity is tied up in your physicality and how much, you know, pain or time are you willing to trade or not? And how can you, you know, can you deal with uncertainty or not? And I think um, there's just a million decisions in medicine and trade-offs that I feel like who you are when you, when you bring yourself to those choices totally informs the path you might take. It might look really different from someone else. You've spoken a lot about an advanced directive and how having a lot of having a lot down on paper can help guide people into making the right decisions. Um, talk to me about that. How you've said and, and why you believe an advanced directive is is an act of love. And for those who don't even know what it is, can you explain how that plays into the decisions one makes when when choosing um, choosing care and, and making some critical life choices when facing end of life? Yeah, sure. Um, so advanced directives are one of those places in medicine where something that seems wonky and boring is actually potentially really soulful and human, and actually necessarily so. So an advanced directive is basically a document, usually with two different um, big foci. One is it 
usually names a healthcare proxy. So if someone were so ill that they couldn't speak for themselves, here's who I would name to speak for me, to answer questions, to make decisions, to try to say what they think I would say if I could communicate. So that's one. Um, And that's like someone who's really ill or someone who has a stroke or someone who's in a car crash, you know, if you might be incapacitated, who would speak for you? And then there's another piece that says, um, do you give that person the right to refuse medical care on your behalf? And in particular, to refuse intensive interventions if you were very ill. Those two things came out of the patient autonomy movement to say, you know, you do have the right to refuse medical care. And if needed, you can appoint someone who has the right to refuse medical care for you. So that's what those two things are. And then there's this kind of sub part of the document that tries to give an indication of how intensive would you want um, your medical treatments to be depending on how sick you are. So at the end of life, would you want to be on all versions of mechanical life support? Would you actually want to try to avoid that? Just a bit of a sense of what you would want. And a lot of people sort of make a choice like that depending on whether they have a lot of other underlying illnesses or whether they're young or elderly. So there's some sort of obvious discretion per person in that. And all of this is revocable. So you could rip it up at any time. But it's basically this document that allows a few things to be possible legally for you were you to get really sick. So it's not a big deal on paper per se. But it gives you a chance to express who you are and who you want to have speak for you. And so in a couple senses, it can save grief for the people you love as well, because they end up less confused about what they should do or even who should speak for you. But I think as much as this helps avoid hurt, It actually is still kind of a flimsy document because it's just sort of a series of checkboxes and names. And so at the same time, as this documentation is really important, I think the thing that is really needed is when a person shows up to speak for you, that they know who you are and they're able to turn around and say, look, this is what's important to my loved one. And so... You've taken um, the issue of the advanced directive and several other elements and, and, and really taken them on as, as things that need to be improved or to expand the conversation around them. Can you talk about the activism that has been born out of your loss and your mission now? My activism... Um, sort of centers around a couple of different things. Um, And for me, it essentially centers around making the healthcare system or life for people with serious illness and the people who love them more human and humane and centering around quality of life for people with serious illness and the people who take care of them. And for me, The areas that I find most exciting as a doctor within medicine are places where, um, well, maybe I'll just say my background in medicine is as a primary care doctor and actually in thinking about healthcare costs, like monetary costs, how much, how much money do we spend in GDP on healthcare and how do we save money in healthcare? But essentially the places that I'm most interested in are places where the moral case for improving our health system 
meets up with the business case for improving our health system. And so for me, I'm most interested in end-of-life care and serious illness, um, in caregiving and family caregivers, and in clinician wellness um, and sort of a burnout epidemic among clinicians. And so that's where I've sort of landed. I used to approach this also more as a researcher uh, and academic, and now I have sort of a public storytelling component. Um, just having realized through Paul's book and then just through paying attention, you know, to how things work in politics, to how things work in the media, to how change comes about, um, thinking about how important storytelling is. What are the roadblocks that you face in this this battle to to overcome or certainly reduce physician burnout and to improve end-of-life costs and, and, and the care given to caregivers? I think the hardest one is thinking about end-of-life care in America. And I think something like a quarter of people at the end of life um, experience either sort of excessive or unwanted medical care. Like they die in the hospital and they their family says they actually wish they had died at home or they die in an intensive care unit or they have CPR done to them and actually that didn't fit with what they had envisioned um, for the way their life would end, um, for example. But it's really hard to anticipate those things in advance. And it's also really scary or even stigmatized to talk about them or plan for them. And so, and just not fun, right? Like how could that not fall to the bottom of your to-do list? <laughs> And so I think, but then, you know, what's been so interesting is that when Paul's book was just coming out, I remember asking his agent saying, like, do you think anyone's going to read this book? And she said, I don't know. It's like it's written by a man who just died and it's about dying and mortality. And then, you know, so many people read it and wanted to talk about it and were moved by it. And so actually, I think those two things are true at the same time that it's really scary and we don't want to think about it and talk about it. And that we also realize that meaning and connection to each other is so important to us. And that even when you're dying, you're alive and you're alive and a living person all the way till the end. And so how can that be as meaningful um, and wonderful as possible? And so I think um, some of this just has to do with framing and storytelling. And then some of it also just has to do with knowledge, people knowing that advanced directives are important and that falls on doctors to bring up to and talk with people about. Or there's a whole field of medicine called palliative care that people think is the same as hospice because there's not a lot of knowledge. I always thought it was the same. Yeah, sure. And hospice itself is this little subset of palliative care. And hospice, of course, is for people who have a terminal illness, and who are likely to die in the next six months. So really sick and at the end of life. And that's a little piece of palliative care. But actually, palliative care could be for any patient at all. Um, Like, for example, somebody who has Parkinson's disease but might be alive for years, or somebody who has kidney disease or someone who's going through cancer and fully expects to be cured and is young. And basically, palliative care is a medical specialty focused on quality of life and on aligning your healthcare decisions with your values um, and on helping with symptoms. And they're sort of experts in managing symptoms, anything ranging from anxiety to pain to nausea to whatever. But I wish everyone knew about palliative care because 
it's this incredible specialty that kind of layers on to the other types of care that someone could be receiving. So I think some of this is just about getting the word out and doing it in a way that's based in human stories instead of here's a bunch of statistics that are depressing and scary or um, here's something that you should do and, you know, you're bad for not doing it or whatever. As I listen to you talk about it, it just, you know, it it just struck me just how little I, I, I know about this branch of medicine and how critical it is. You know what's weird about it, by the way, is that it shouldn't actually really have to exist. Like if you could just explode the healthcare system, you would start with that, right? It's actually like this new specialty in the past few decades, but it's because there was such an unmet need. Like it's so desperately needed <laughs> to center to center the person's actual values and well-being, you know? It seems crazy that it, it isn't naturally happening. Totally. Not that people aren't trying, but right, it's fragmented and it's hyper-specialized and, you know, who you are can sort of get lost in the healthcare system. Is this painful work for you? I ask that because your storytelling involves, a large part of it involves recounting what happened to you and people seeing it through your eyes and, and you know, you grounding them in, I have a personal experience. And so when I tell you this matters, it matters. But it means you're walking that walk all the time. And I wonder, is that painful for you? Um, no, it, it's weird. I would think maybe it would be, but I guess I'm just experiencing it all the time anyway. It's sort of like if someone's going through something hard and then, you know, we're afraid to ask them how they're doing or afraid to bring it up, you know, for example, bring up someone who died or bring up the loss of a job or whatever. And I feel like in a way it just feels more connecting to be able to speak about it and then to trade stories. Um, it's been helpful. And, and then I guess, I guess the only thing that is sort of a liability or could be hard, or one of the things is, um, is feeling like I'm stuck in telling the same story, but I think I'm just sort of attuned to that and, and feel like, you know, when Paul first died and then I was doing a book tour for Paul, I talked all about Paul, of course, because I was doing this book tour on behalf of him, but then people started to ask me questions about grief and then, you know, grief and bereavement and grieving became part of the story. And then now like my parenting Katie moving forward and relating to loss and to Paul through her eyes and in helping her understand her relationship to the world is part of it. And I even fell in love after Paul died um, and then fell out of love after Paul died. And that story was sort of part of it too. Like how do you navigate living into a new future while also holding on to the parts of the past that are really important? As this episode goes to air, millions of people here in the United States and around the world have lost their battle with COVID, leaving countless more struggling with the weight of grief and loss. I normally ask each guest to leave us with advice that we can use as we make our way through life as activists. But with Lucy, I felt we needed her wisdom to deal with something far more elemental. For people who are listening to this conversation, who are in the midst of grief and 
navigating the new terrain of bereavement in their lives. I think what's so important is to, to give people tools or point them in places where they can get what they need. And so I ask you this question for you, what were the tools you used to, to help you navigate the, the, the reality of Paul's loss? Yeah, I'm really happy to share what I found helpful. Time was helpful, which obviously you can't rush, I think, um, because it just is so painful and disorienting. And I, I, like many people, found that grief sort of comes in waves, um, even still, although they're less frequent and they're less tall. Um, For me, I mean, ultimately, I kind of found that there was no way through other than through. It almost felt like the only way through was to feel my feelings about it, which um, is really hard. And I found reading was helpful, um, both to get a little distance and understand, you know, how grief was working for me and also as a way to kind of connect to it. And I found poetry really helpful. There's a poetry anthology called The Art of Losing. Uh, The editor is Kevin Young, I think, that that is really beautiful across time, all kinds of different poets that I really liked. And um, I liked a book called Grieving Mindfully by Sami Kumar. And it's sort of like really challenging. It's like a, it's a very like Buddhist full of acceptance type of book, which actually I found challenging initially, but I, it was really instructive. And then there's a kind of really practical series of books on grief by Alan Wolfelt that are, I think the one I read was some, called something like, 100 practical things to do after your spouse dies. And it was really helpful to sort of like, here's some ways to help commemorate somebody here, some ways to help hope. And because initially it's just like nuts and bolts in a way. And then um, there's a website platform called Modern Loss. Um, and they've also turned it into a an edited book of essays. And I really like that too, because Modern Loss as a community and a forum, it just shows how many ways there are to grieve. And then I do find um, mindfulness meditation really helpful, like just a bite-sized amount, like five or 10 minutes every other day, really changes your brain in, the, in what the research shows. And um, so that and exercising and trying to sleep and trying to eat regular meals, like all the basics I would tell a patient that are not rocket science, but when you're first grieving, they feel hard. I think those are really helpful too, just to make sure you are as solid as possible. Yeah. And and I wonder for those who have kids, obviously Katie never got to to physically know her dad, but I'm sure he's very present for her as you take her to his graveside and it's clear that he's not absent from her life. For for parents who have lost a spouse and have kids, I'm just wondering whether there's anything you might say or anything that worked for you as you're as you're raising Katie. Yeah, it's funny because I think I'm still learning this because when Katie, Katie was eight months old when Paul died and she's just starting to be upset that she doesn't have a memory of him. Like we talk about how, like when she thinks about Paul, she sort of gets a warm, cozy feeling. And so we talk about how that is a memory. That's how she feels about Paul, which is how she felt as a baby, like being held by Paul. But at the same time, that is not a total consolation. And so... I do think about how, like, in a way, Katie's walking into more pain as she gets awareness of what she's missing after sort of having come through this child version of, like, 
well, things just are the way they are. And then I think she's sort of developing this meta awareness of actually needing to process it. And I imagine that'll continue through the years and be true when she's a teenager and be true when she's growing up and trying to figure this out for herself. So in a way, I'm sort of learning that um, over time and I don't have all the answers yet. It is helpful to try to answer her questions. Um, And also, I kind of have felt like she or maybe kids generally can handle more than what we give them credit for that, that especially because they may not layer on all the meanings that we do, like the way that Katie thinks she doesn't think a cemetery is like somber or spooky or something. Um, She has her own relationship to it that, that totally comes from her. And I think it's nice to let her have that. When you think about the future, your future, what what do you see? Is it bright? Is it is it, is it one way you hope to remarry? What do you hope for? I guess a couple. I have a couple of thoughts on that. Um, I mean, first of all, who knows? Um, I don't. I know that whatever prediction I make will be wrong. Is what I'm saying. I do picture falling in love and plan to fall in love, although I'm not actively planning for that, partly because like Tinder is such a hellscape and partly because I'm like a single mom and I'm really focused on Katie right now too. But I also feel like even though I'm not actively looking for a partner right now, um, also because of COVID, I really feel like like a romantic, like I sort of believe that love is around the corner or could be just around the corner. So I think those two things are also true. And then I think I I think I sort of used to think of life like life is a path and you're sort of walking down it and you're going somewhere relatively planned. And now I think of it more like a series of moments. Like all in a way is a moment in my life. And there's other moments now um, that don't include Paul. And Right now, I'm in like the first grade moment with Katie, um, who's a first grader. And I think my parents are getting older. And so I picture sort of being in this moment with them. Like I have this moment of relationship with my parents. And that moment will also be over in 10 or 20 years. And maybe this next moment involves caregiving in some form for them. And then that will be over. And so things that are wonderful or things that are really hard are are all moments, right? And some of that's great because they're really hard and some of that's really painful because you don't want it to be over. And I think I do have a sense of this constantly shifting landscape of like time and of the possible. So I guess right now I picture love will come again and hopefully and everything else will change and and I'll be focused on the moment. I guess my final question to you is this, how do you hold true to the hope that everything's going to be okay? I mean, when Paul was first diagnosed with cancer, he said that. He said, "Don't worry, everything's going to be okay." And I I knew at the time, and so did he as he was saying it, that it didn't mean that he wasn't going to die. But I also think he didn't quite know what it did mean. I think he meant more like 
we're in this together and that's part of what makes it okay. Or we'll figure out how to get some sense of meaning and that will make it okay. And I think, you know, in all kinds of different things, like anticipating an illness or just the hardship that comes with raising a child or many types of societal problems or even climate crisis. It's like there is a not okay version of okay. And I think I think that courage is part of it. And I think community is part of it. Like the knowledge that you figured out what is really valuable to you and that will make you feel like you did your best and made a contribution and you are authentically connected to other people. And I feel like that there is a version of okay in that somewhere where you can look back at yourself and feel like you did your best. And maybe that's what I mean. Uh, that's what I, that's how I, that's how I frame it to myself, I think. Well, Lucy Kalanithi, thank you. Thank you for sharing with me today and for sharing with all our listeners. Thank you. Grief-fueled activism is soul-bearing and painful work done in the name of strangers. I find the way she embraces telling the story of Paul dying while allowing the story to expand and include the reality of her still living and growing deeply inspiring. As long as I'm honest with whatever about whatever's happening now, it has kind of worked okay. So as this week's show draws to a close, I urge you to be honest with yourself and your stories and to remember that they connect us far more deeply than any pile of data points ever will. And when the telling of your story or simply the struggle for change starts to feel too hard, too painful, fall back on these words by Nietzsche. He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. Never forget your why, the reason you're fighting in the first place. Thank you so much for listening. Please take time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Follow me at Aisha Sasei on Twitter and on Instagram at I am Aisha Sasei. The Accidental Activist is a Wonder Media Network production in partnership with Arella Productions. Executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and me, Aisha Sasei. Our producers are Brittany Martinez and Taylor Williamson. Until the next time, take care, everyone, and bye for now. No matter who you are, young or old, famous or not, it's important to know we all have the power to make a difference, to be a world changer. All it takes is a belief a belief that what you have to offer the world is meaningful, valuable, and powerful. It's something we explore throughout this series. So if you like what you're hearing, I want to recommend another show you might like. It's called Art of Power from our friends over at WBEZ Chicago. Every week, award-winning journalist Arthi Shahani has intimate, unexpected conversations with people on how they use their power to make meaningful change. Listen to guests like President Barack Obama, who discusses redefining what it means to be a man. And Alison Felix, the most decorated Olympian in U.S. track and field history, 
who talks about having to hide her pregnancy in a very painful and instructive journey. Each episode reveals insightful and candid conversations Arthi has with her guests, which is then synthesized into power lessons you can use in your daily life. From changing your career to starting an inspiring project, you'll be even more ready to take on your own big, bold goals. So check it out. Learn how your own voice, your own power can impact the world. Art of Power is out now and available wherever you get your podcasts.